0: Agnes Callard is an associate professor in philosophy at the University of Chicago. She received her BA from UChicago in 1997 and her PhD from Berkeley in 2008. Her primary areas of specialization are ancient philosophy and ethics. She was born in Budapest, Hungary and attended the University of Chicago as an undergraduate. Her book, Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming, discusses the major value transformations that shape our lives, becoming parents, changes in political views, acquiring new passions, how do these changes happen, and to what extent does a person have a hand in guiding them? I got to sit down in person with Agnes, which was a uh, first for this podcast. We talked about status games, paths in life, persuasion, good parenting, privacy, and God. Hope you enjoy. But yeah, that's sort of the the cut and dry. But again, yeah, I appreciate you doing this. Super cool of you. Absolutely. So... I wanted to start off. Yeah, this is a bit strange doing it in person. I'm like so used to seeing somebody on the other side of the Zoom screen. I guess the audio quality is going to be better at least. So I wanted to start off with just your path. You know, there's plenty to talk about as far as your work is concerned, but I think in your case, it'd be really cool to hear about your path earlier on in life because you were born in Hungary, if I'm Mm -hmm, not mistaken. What was that all like for you?
1: So uh, I came to the U.S. when I was about six and I, via Rome, we spent a year in Rome in between because you couldn't leave Hungary legally at the time. So once you left Hungary, you needed to find a country that would take you in basically as refugees. And so eventually my parents teamed up with this sort of organization that was taking Russian Jews either to the U.S. or to Israel. Actually, I think my parents initially thought they were going to end up in Israel, but we ended up here. And then by the time I was 10, we got American passports. And so then I spent my I was able to. We were not able to go back to Hungary until we had passports, and so. But then, once we had American passports, we could go back, and so I spent my childhood from that point kind of half and half up through college. I would be in, in Hungary for the summers, and then in the U.S. for like the academic year. I I do remember thinking as a kid, like people would talk about like like behind the Iron Curtain, and I didn't really get that was a metaphor. And so I thought it was weird because Hungary was really nice and they had great ice cream and everyone was nice to me. And I was like, (laughs) why everyone thought it was such a horrible place was strange to me. But I had a very skewed picture, obviously. I thought most Hungarians were Jews, because I probably knew, like, many of the Jews in Hungary. And those were all the people we, you know, we only ever hung out with other Jews. And so, like, that was not a representative sample. So I, but in in the US, I went to Orthodox Jewish schools, mostly, my parents were not religious, but just because they sort of took us in as like my sister and me in as like charity cases. And so we were able to go for free until, and then around high school, I went to public school, religious school, but having a non-religious home life thing did not work out. It created a lot. Lot of conflicts and then I in high school I got very into debate Lincoln Douglas debate and that's how I discovered philosophy because it would sort of come up as these sources for quotes basically so I like went to the the Barnes and Noble I think it was I think it was one in Manhattan though I'm, I'm not sure I'm remembering correctly and but they' only, like they had a philosophy section and I just bought one of each book it was like one shelf and I read through that and that was very exciting for me I especially loved Kant uh, I wasn't good at debate like I didn't win a lot. I mean, I was, I was, I was successful in the sense that I was captain of my high school team, but I was not successful in terms of like winning tournaments or things like that, but I loved it anyway. And then I was an undergrad in high school. My main interests were math and physics. And so I thought that's what I was going to do. I thought I was going to be a physics major when I came here, but sort of, I sort of discovered like I discovered the humanities in a different way when mm. I got here. And I discovered that like there could be right or wrong answers in the humanities, which hadn't really <laughs> occurred to me. It kind of just seemed like people making stuff up. Right. And so that was just more exciting to me than physics. So I ended up I ended up being a classics major and also fundamentals major as an undergrad here. And then I went to classics grad school at Berkeley. And then I did that. Like I basically jump. When you go to grad school, there's like a bunch of hoops you have to jump through. Like in classics, there's a especially large number of hoops. So there's just a lot of exams, you know like language exams, prose composition, history exams, et cetera. I basically jumped through all the hoops and then I'm like, okay, but I don't actually want to write a classics dissertation. <laughs> so I spent a year at Princeton visiting their philosophy department, seeing like maybe what I want to do philosophy. Cause I wasn't even a philosophy major as undergrad. So, And then I did like philosophy. I did, I liked Princeton like for a year, but I couldn't imagine being there for longer than a year. So then I applied, come back to Berkeley in philosophy and then got a PhD in philosophy and then got a job here. This is my first job that I've had since 2008. That's my trajectory.
0: Super cool. Yeah, you know, you touched on it a little bit. I was gonna ask, ask you to go into, you know, what it was that got you into philosophy because obviously I don't see a lot of kids, you know, reading Socrates at an early age. But in your case, it sort of looks like, you know, having come in here and thinking, okay, maybe I wanna go into physics and then ending up not doing philosophy, but sort of going down that route, was it just the sort of chain of logic, so to speak, that really interested you in saying like, okay, there can be a right answer for this, where in in physics or something, maybe in math, you can prove things to be true or false. Was what intrigued you the fact that you could sort of apply those same principles to the humanities?
1: Yeah, I mean, even things like you know, should you be a vegetarian? Or what should you eat? And like the thought that you could, like I took this um, class called Human Being and Citizen, with my, you know, that was my core class. And I took it with this woman named Amy Cass. And I remember, I just remember this one discussion that we had, and I think I think it was in that class or maybe it was another one I took with her about the Odyssey, where we're talking about the lotus eaters. And she's like, the lotus eaters are kind of like vegetarians. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was like, what would it be? Like, what is there? What would it be to like be a plant eater and for that to mark you, at, I was a vegetarian at the time. Okay, mm, Not anymore. Uh, not anymore, no, okay. but I was for a long time. And you know, for, for being a plant eater to sort of mark you out culturally. So not even like asking about vegetarianism, are we morally prohibited from eating animals, but asking about the kind of cultural significance of your eating habits. It just it was a way of thinking I hadn't encountered before. Um, But I think that I really, I mean, I think I started to be interested in philosophy, you know, when I read these things for debate, where my goal initially was just to find things to quote, but I thought they were really interesting. And I thought, I actually thought like that Kant had answered all the questions. So it was puzzling to me that there was philosophy after Kant. I thought he just had got it, um, got it all right. And I did come in here wanting to do more Kant and Joyce. I was very into James Joyce as an undergraduate. So I'm sorry, as a high school student. So those were two two authors that I wanted to study more in college. And so even though I wasn't a philosophy major, I did take, you know, philosophy classes. And I took sort of literature classes that had a philosophical bent to them. And I think that, like, in high school, it wasn't exactly that I, I didn't do badly in humanities, but I... I I always felt like I wasn't, I didn't know what was being asked for, like with a paper. I would write and rewrite. I wrote all my papers the night before and I kept writing them and rewriting them and being like, what am I supposed to be doing here? (laughs) I just found it really like puzzling what I was supposed to be doing. And somehow in college, the idea of like learning something from a work of literature sort of clicked. So yes, it's the true and the false. And it's also just being able to get purchase both on the work of literature and on your own life by bringing them together.
0: Got it to shift gears for a second, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, starting out, whether you're reading Plato, Socrates, Kant, any of these people, what do you think, why is it that some writing lasts the test of time, right? Like this is particularly true in philosophy. Do you think we place too much emphasis on it? Or is like the longevity a sign of the significance of the human condition or they got it right?
1: So I think that there's one additional factor besides the question of like, how good was it? It's sort of, how influential was it, right? So if like, even if it wasn't that good, but then it sort of dictates how a whole bunch of debates are framed later, you might need to read it to understand, right? But I think the question did, have we gotten it basically right? I mean, that's a hard one for me to answer because even if I look at the canon, right? There's just stuff in the canon that doesn't resonate with me at all. Like if I were making the canon by myself without any knowledge of like, you know, like Aquinas and Plotinus would not show up in the canon for me. (laughs) Like I just don't get much out of reading them. And Wittgenstein might not show up in the canon for me if I were creating it. Right. Uh, Like if somebody just gave me a bunch of texts. And, And so like when I say you know, are are we just picking the things that are good? Like some of the things we've picked don't seem that good to me. On the other hand, I'm perfectly willing to be like, yeah, different philosophers are just going to resonate with different people. And some people might read Plato and they're just like, you know, like, why doesn't Plato tell us what he thinks? (laughs) Uh, And they want something more like Kant. And so it's, it's hard, I guess it's hard to distinguish that what is objectively good versus what resonates with you. Sorry, there's an additional thing that I think is super important, which is, just having there be a relatively small number of authors who most people have read, such that we have some, we have the possibility of having a conversation, right? Because a conversation requires at least some shared terminology. So, but like the thought, could there be just undiscovered greatness? I think there just is. I mean, I think there's this, you know, Portuguese Poet slash I think he's a philosopher Fernando Pessoa. I think he's a genius. He hasn't made it into the philosophical canon in the way that a lot of writers who write kind of similar to him, like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard, have. You know, do I think that's some kind of travesty or injustice? I don't tend to think about that way. There are probably tons of others that I've never read that also could have made it into the canon. So, so it's hard to sort of step outside my own skin and be like, well, we're correct in these cases and incorrect in these ones because, again, Pessoa resonates with me and you know. But I think that, I guess I do think that with respect to the authors who are in the canon who do resonate with me, I feel confident that the things I see in those authors are genuine insights because I've had them as insights. So I've experienced the insight.
0: Got it. And now to turn it on you for a second, I'm going to ask you the same question I asked, I think, Tyler Cowen, which was, what do you think compels you to write? Because you're pretty prolific in your own right.
1: I think that a bunch of different things or like a bunch of different levels one could address the issue. Like often it's like I promised to give a talk or I promise to write something <laughs> and so then I have to write it. But of course I create those contexts for myself. I tend to write, like a lot of people say they write like almost like to figure out what they think. Mm. And I think I am doing that to some degree, but for me in a very fundamental way, writing is an act of communication. So I'm like not writing to myself. I'm, I'm imagining some kind of audience. If it's a talk, I'm imagining the audience of the talk. If it's if, if I have an editor, I'm imagining the editor. Like if I'm writing something for like the point or something, I'm imagining my point editor as my audience. When my dissertation, I just wrote it for my main dissertation advisor, Sam Scheffler, right? So for me, writing is communicative and that means you have to be thinking of an audience. And like, I'm writing a trade book right now and it was, getting started was the hardest thing ever because it was so hard to imagine my audience. Because I'm like, who is reading this book, right? Like, yeah. And I think in the end, I decided it was just like, I was going to pick like first year undergrad U <laughs> Chicago undergrads as my my mental model like someone who hasn't encountered Plato before but is like interested because I needed someone. I was like imagining I'm giving a talk to them. Right. So I think I like communicating with. I like like you know kind of putting a thought forward to that group of people and then also not only having them ask me questions but setting up in some sense which questions they're going to ask, right? You you have control over what questions people ask you by how you talk and what you say. And So my communication is in a way shaped by my anticipation of what kinds of questions I want to receive. But yeah, I guess I think my reasons for writing and my reasons for like talking to you right now are not that different.
0: Got it. Got it. And so I want to sort of double down on, I think, what brought us together in the first place, which is I recorded something with Tyler Cowen like a few weeks ago and you had Mm. something to say about it. Mm. And it had a little bit to do with something that you were just touching on, which is just doing things for the sake of doing them or Mm. what audience you have in mind. And so I think what you wrote was, let's see if I can find this. Tyler says the reason he keeps writing is that he does it for its own sake rather than to benefit his audience by changing their mind. Mm. Then he says it's like money where you keep going if you're not doing it for its own sake, but to benefit the world by changing it. I'm curious to hear you expand on that a little bit and where you think the difference really lies.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I thought Tyler was just flat out contradicting himself. (laughs) That is... (laughs) I thought he was saying two things are similar when they're in fact different. I think that one thing that's interesting is that these two activities, namely writing and making money, we have different conditions under which we praise them. So we praise writing when you don't care what people think and you're doing it for its own sake. And then we praise making money when you really have these altruistic other motives. And so what Tyler wanted to do was present both things under their best aspect. And so he was presenting, I mean, and of course, then they're they're similar under that level of description, right? But I think that, I mean, I think it sort of illustrates a danger, and I'm sure that I fall into it as much as Tyler does, of when you're trying to talk or give an account of yourself, you're at the same time trying to praise yourself or present yourself in a good light. It's really hard to do like the first thing without doing the second thing. And so you can sort of get so caught up in that that you actually don't even hear what you're saying and that it doesn't like fit together. But in terms of, you know, my actual thoughts about when people ought to write and how people ought to make money, I think the thought that people who are making like I think Tyler thought that like a lot of people who make money are actually altruistic and want to benefit the world. That seems True to me from the small sample I've had of people who are engaged in making money, uh, su- surprisingly true. I think he's right about that. And then, you know, why do people write? I mean, I think that I guess there's, you know, there's there's a question, why do the people, why do those people who want to improve the world, the businessmen who want to improve, why, why do they want to do that, mm. right? And like, at least part of that is that they want to be thought well of, right? They want to be valued and respected. And a lot of people, especially who have a lot of money, feel like, I don't want to just be thought of as someone who has a lot of money. I want to be thought of as someone who has other virtues. And the two other virtues that I think they tend to go for are, one, being really, really smart and really good at business such that, in effect, the money they have is earned or deserved as a result of this skill. And the other is like being well-intentioned or being morally good, like being directed at the good of humanity, right? And so that's sort of, you know, would partly explain why there's this push to either represent yourself as smart or represent yourself as altruistic or ideally both, right? For people who write a lot, you know, we want people to pay attention to us and listen to us. Like, I'm communicating because I, like to people who are listening to me, right? I think Tyler's doing the same thing. Like, he's not just writing for himself, right? He's obviously writing for an audience. But I think that there is... You know, there are different like degrees to which what you, sh- what you say can be shaped by your conception of your audience. And there are sort of like, I think, bad and good equilibria that one can get into with one's audience, right? So like if all you're ever doing is satisfying your audience's expectations about exactly who they already think you are, and you're just sort of producing a certain kind of content, and there's plenty of people online who are doing this, right? Mm-hmm who you could almost see it as like flattery of a certain kind of the audience. Like that's certainly bad, right? And I think what Tyler was trying to do when he said he only writes for himself is to signal that he's not that kind of an accommodator of his audience, right? And I think he isn't. So, but even the people who are not doing that are writing for an audience and they're writing because they care what other people think about them. If you didn't care what other people think about you, thought about you at all, like you would just have far less of an incentive to engage with those people.
0: I think you're touching on something interesting there. Why do you think that that's held in such high regard in some some senses, like not caring what other people think of you? Because it's very weird to go about life and run into people who, it's not to say I don't do this myself, who say, oh, I don't really care what they think. I don't care what this person thinks. That's almost like, it's almost sort of a jockeying for status in a way, which I want to get into later. But why do you think that is?
1: I think that when you reveal that you care what other people think, you're exposing a vulnerability. And in effect, you're telling them, you can really hurt me by just thinking of me poorly, right? And people don't like to reveal that about themselves. They like to appear tough. And so toughness and indifference often go together as signals, I think. So I think also, so that's one aspect of it. Here's another aspect of it. As we're growing up, when we're young, we like care a lot about what people think about us. it's very clear that kids care what their parents think about them, right? Kids, if you're if you're if you say to your kid, I'm disappointed in you, that's very like your kid is devastated. So, there's no question that like kids care what their parents think about them, but then like, you know, as the kid gets older, they care a little bit less what their parents think about them, but they care what their friends think about them, right? And I think we see it as a mark of maturity to like not care as much what other people think about you. That is to have in a sense within your own soul, a kind of ability to assess when you're doing well and doing badly and not having to farm that judgment out onto other people. And so to care about what other people think about you is sort of to admit that you're not grown up.
0: Got it. So to shift gears and sort of what I was alluding to earlier, I think you were talking to, I want to say it's Ezra Klein about this, and he brought up, you know, some things about status and meritocracy, and especially, you know, some of your thoughts on when we meet for the first time, right? Mm. What the interplay between actually getting to know someone is and jockeying for status is, And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Like, is there an interplay? Is it one or the other? Why do we do that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, when you say jockeying for status, that sounds like one of the two status games that I um, describe in, yep. that, in the piece that Ezra's referring to there. Namely, the one where each of us wants to be higher than the other. I find that that, that is a game that I, I experience and I get into with people sometimes, but I find I more often get into the other game, the we're equal game. And I think it's that it's like you might think there's this appearance that you can just show up in a room right? At a party, you'd run in and you start talking to the person. But actually, somewhere deep in our brains, we have this thought, before we start communicating, we have to, in some sense, set up a relationship that we have, right? So we have to be communicating as something or other. And, you know, one basis on which we could be communicating is we're equals. And another basis on which we could be communicating is one of us is above the other. And so in effect, we're like trying to figure that it's like before we have the conversation, let's figure out the terms on which the conversation is going to be conducted. I don't I don't think everyone does this. Like, I think kids don't do it very much. Young kids like, you know, my kids recently had like some kids their age that came over to our house that they didn't know before. And like they kind of just start relating in a very direct way of like, I like this, you know. But I think as we get older, and it may just keep happening more and more as you get older, like maybe I'll be doing it more when I'm 60 or something, you feel more and more like you need to have like a basis for having the conversation. And I even like I think all that's fine. The The times when it really bothers me are the times when it eats up the entire time for having the conversation, Right. Where you never actually get to saying anything because you spend the whole time determining like your, you know, the basis upon which you might have some other conversation that you never have.
0: Right. I guess half of that is like small talk though, right? And just the basis on which we can get to know each other is okay, you know, we're both in this example, both sort of part of a U Chicago community. We can come to the Logan Center and meet, and that's like something that we can do. But in any other sense, it's like where do you draw the line between actually getting to know someone and I'm gonna try and relate to you in such a way that puts me above or below
1: you or equal to you. Good. I mean, I think that, yeah, I think that a lot of small talk is just about setting up the egalitarian status game. Sure. So... We, we in effect are subject to the, so weather in particular, mm. right? Like we are subject to the same natural forces, right? That's a big equalizer for people. It works much less, like in a, the time of Zoom, mm-hmm. um, we're not all, we don't all have the same weather anymore, the people that we talk to. But I think that, so I think that the way that you can distinguish it is just, are you asking questions where you want to know the answer? <laughs> like a lot of the questions that we ask people that are part of small talk, we're not asking them because we want to know the answer. And But getting to know someone, you ask them questions where you actually do want to know the answer. And so you can just sort of ask yourself, do I want to know the answer or not? And that will determine which of the two things you're doing.
0: Got it. To delve a little bit deeper into that initial question, you argued for, I think, a, a non-punitive meritocracy with regard to all of this. How do you break that down for anybody who doesn't know what that means, which I didn't about two days ago?
1: So I would say like, you know, the, the kind of, the structure of normativity is like possibly bipartite. So you can praise people, or let's say, let's say tripartite, okay? So you can praise people for going above and beyond. You can blame them for going below, and then you can maybe do nothing if they exactly meet the norm, right? That's where the, I realized I was leaving out the middle sure, thing, so sure. yeah. So you might have a norm, right? And so now you're gonna check. Right. Do people exceed, do they meet it, or do they fall below it? Now, whether they even count as exceeding it or meeting it or falling below it is gonna be like heavily context dependent in a whole lot of ways, right? If I get a paper from a student, right, and I need to judge, does this paper exceed or meet or fall below expectations? I need to know, wait a minute, like is this a high school student, is it a college student, what year are they in? How far along are we in the course? What course is it? Right. Sure. So so you have a lot of contextual information that you need in order to even make this assessment. But I think we can make it, and we make it all the time about people in all sorts of different ways. And I think that what I'm trying to argue for in that piece is that we don't need to couple the blame as tightly as we tend to to the praise. So we could think of our meritocracy in which some people, you know, succeed very, very strikingly in life. We could think of that as, like, those people, like, in large part, like, deserved to succeed in the sense that they worked hard to get where they are and they made the best of the talents that they were given and the opportunities that they were given. And so we don't need to be shy of or, let's say, jealous of, like, respecting them for that. Though, again, those judgments have to be made contextually. So, for instance, if you imagine one of those people had a lot fewer opportunities than the others and was in a much more adverse environment, we want to give them even more credit, right? We can think of that, and then we but we don't need to, to to infer from that to the idea that we need a symmetrical treatment for the failures. So people who don't achieve very much and who who are unhappy with their lives and I think we don't have to think, well, it was through fault of their own. We can think about those cases, no, it was mostly because of, you know, external factors interfering. And the reason the the justification of treating these cases asymmetrically, I think, is just that it's clear that everyone desires the good <laughs> and everyone desires to achieve the good. And so if they fail, it's because something got in their way. Whereas if they succeed, it really is that drive for the good that's, that's pushing them there.
0: Gotcha. So I wanted to switch gears again for a second. And I think this is like a close enough subject that it makes sense to go to, but that is on persuasion through argument versus persuasion through influence. There's a, I think it was a 2019, I want to say New York Times article that you wrote on academic deplatforming, And sort of as this, the way I interpret it, as as a call to focus on actual viewpoints rather than the number of people that hold them. Am I getting that right?
1: Yes. So it was on whether we should use petitions to sort of solve disputes among academic philosophers. Got
0: you. So do you think calling for persuasion by authority is idealistic in a sense? Like, don't the majority sort of control the narrative of history?
1: No, it's not the reason I'm against it. I think the reason that I'm against it is that the authority could be wrong and that what we want to do is to find the truth. And there are sort of methods of persuasion that are primarily aimed at shaping other people's beliefs, but not shaping other people's beliefs with a view to the truth, right? Right. And so I think that at least philosophers, and really not only philosophers, ought to be employing what i would call inquisitive forms of persuasion that is forms of persuasions that are get it that are directed at knowing the truth whatever it is whatever it may be and persuasion by authority isn't like that
0: got you got you um so another question here and it has to do i think a bit with your book aspiration is just on permutations and and paths in life and so as i guess a bit of a preface to this something that i happen to think a lot about is dealing with permutations and just the number of possibilities in life, right? Like reasonably speaking, there's a sequence of actions that I could take that would lead me to become a tour guide in Bali and another that would lead me to become prime minister of Canada. Neither of those I would say are particularly likely, but they're there. And so when it comes to dealing with decisions on a day-to-day basis and sort of the the agency of becoming in the sense that you put it, is is that something that we should be thinking about
1: yeah, so I think one thing that's interesting is this question, like, how different is the you that becomes a tour guide in Bali from the you that becomes the prime minister of Canada? And, like, from your from your vantage point right now, those look like totally different lives because <laughs> you're imagining the one in Bali, like, you know, and the other one in Canada, and the other one, you know, the, the tour guide has very, like, maybe a relaxed life and the Canada prime minister is like very busy, right? But I think it's sort of consistent with those facts, the sort of the externally visible facts about the person that like, you're very unhappy in both of these lives and you have a lot of the same vices and like you're kind of dissatisfied and disenchanted with your life and you don't have a sense of what's important and you don't have loved ones or or it's also the opposite is, is, is consistent, sure. right? And so part of like, The question, like, I think we often frame the basic facts of our lives in terms of career because that's like a grip that you can get on your life. Apparently this is a very American thing I've heard. Like I've heard that in America, when you meet someone, you ask them what they do. Like in Europe, people ask like, where are you from? Or something, they wouldn't ask what you do, right? And the European thing is is yet another totally illusory way of trying to get a grip on a person. Like, where, where did they come, you know, were they born in this city or that city? Like, who cares, right? But we need something. We need some way of getting a grip on, like, our identities, right? And so we use these external signs of, like, tour guide versus prime minister. But I think that, you know, what I'm talking about in my book, like, it could well be a process where you end up as the tour guide or the prime minister, sure. but it's you know, as we're sort of like moving forward in our lives, it's not that what we're doing is making a bunch of choices that in ways we couldn't at all foresee land us. In some, you know, some life, you know, as though like if I had taken this other train and I had not run into this person, then I would be right. It's rather like, of course, there are those opportunities and there are these like moments where it's like, oh, if I hadn't met this person, like that th- that can be true. It can be a necessary condition, but that's far from its being sufficient. Right. There's a whole other story of like you got into that train, and you met this person and then You. From that point, kind of like work to try to come to appreciate some form of value that you then were also able to like provide to the world, right? As tour guide or as prime minister, and so I think that you know what what we're working at as aspirants is sort of coming to flesh out the inside of the point of view of the tour guide or the prime minister that will eventually be, such that we like come to have the world look a distinctive new way to us, right? And what we can have from that at the the, the beginning, the the view that we have from the outside is like a very underdetermined shell of like what it would be to actually inhabit that point of view. And it's the inhabiting work that we're doing as aspirants.
0: Got it. You know, it's interesting growing up, and I know you have kids, so you can probably relate to this. It seems like we're almost forced to choose very early on. I think this is less so in the States, but if you're looking at, you know, seemingly education in in parts of Europe, like in middle school, you're basically saying, okay, I want to go down this path. Is there any fault in that? Do you think like when you're looking at your own kids and sort of trying to grapple with what good parenting is? Do you think that telling them that they should at least have some sort of path or following their interests that far out is a good thing? Or should they just sort of do whatever they're compelled to do in the short?
1: I think that, like, my oldest is very driven, and he has wanted to be, like, you know, to write and direct movies for quite a long time now, like, at least for, you know, he's 17, maybe at least for, like, six or seven years, and... It's never a matter of me being like, you should find something or you shouldn't find something. It didn't Mm. feel like something I could control. And my middle son is like a little bit that way with respect to history. He's very interested in history. He wants to be a high school, like history teacher. Cool. Or middle school history teacher. And so like it, it has seemed, maybe this is an illusion, but it has sort of seemed to me that my kids like just sort of, coalesced onto something but it could also be that like my oldest and my middle are unusual and maybe my youngest is not going to and he'll just be kind of drifting for a bit. I was much more of a drifter than my either of those two kids are. Um, And you know I think that even when we settle on even when people settle on something like you had told me you settled on banking at some point and then it turned out you were unsettled right and so I think like All I can say about my older two is like where they are now, right? Which isn't necessarily where they're going to be. But I do, you know, as a kid, you get asked a lot, like, what are you gonna be when you grow up? You start getting asked that when you're like four years old, right? And so I think a kid always feels the need to have some kind of an answer to that question. And my youngest, the answer he gives you, if you ask him, is he's going to be a philosopher. He's going to carry on the family awesome. tradition because he's like knows that his older two brothers are like, you know, straying from the path. So, <laughs> he, you know, but like, what does that mean? It just for him mostly means like having some answer, right? So I think, you know, is it, is it bad to pressure kids to produce some answer or other? I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> like, I, I guess I haven't tried to live in the alternative world.
0: That makes sense. More broadly now, what do you think makes good parenting? Is there anything you're particularly focused on that you think other people are probably looking over?
1: I think one thing that's maybe that differentiates me from other people who think about parenting is that I think the category of good parenting makes less sense. It's sort of like good husbanding or good wifing or something where what you're really talking about is a relationship that can be going either well or badly. And like, there's this tendency to like erase the kids part of the relationship. You know, it's like, oh, it's not, I gotta do good parenting and like my kids have no responsibility. (laughs) Like I think it's their job to be good kids too, right? And so that the good parenting thing seems to me to like allied that a bit and to overstate one party's role in fully determining whether a relationship is healthy or not. Mm-hmm. And I think whether those relationships are like healthy or good relationships is partly a function of like how the personalities mesh or interact. And that's not totally up to like one's control. And so there's like an illusion, for instance, that every parent could be like an equally good parent to every child. I'm sure. like, I just don't think that's true. Sure. Um, so... I think like what you have to do with each of your kids is sort of find some kind of equilibrium of how to interact that works for both of you. And that takes a long time because it takes them time to like come into being as a person, right? And I think that's what you're sort of doing and they're trying to do it too. And and it's like, it's rarely a thing where it's like, well, if you just committed harder or something to doing it, like it would be like, you know, in a marriage, we'll just commit harder to like being a good spouse and mm-hmm. then the relationship will work out. It's like, no, it's not really how relationships work, Right. right? Or being a good brother or sister, right? Like it's, I, you know, I think there are sort of things where it's like clear cases of like abuse or a, a, parents have power over their children. It's possible to abuse that power. But if we sort of set that pretty extreme set of things aside, you know, you're providing your kids with the basics of what they need for life, That then you've done like the basics, but the part that's only on you, right? It's on you to do that. It's not on them to sure, get sure, sure. food or whatever. But then once you've done that, it's like a relationship. And like any relationship, it's pretty hard to say what it would take for it to go well, it's gonna be like incredibly specific to the contours of that relationship.
0: Got it. One thing I wanna switch to for a second is what drives us. And you've written a little bit about anger, actually a lot about anger. I think it's interesting, you know, not necessarily anger, but in my own sort of personal experience, spite has been something, it's not, Quite the same as anger, but it's actually really cool when someone says, like, oh, you'll never amount to you know doing that thing or that other thing, and it's like actually a pretty cool driver. One thing that you wrote about that I thought was cool just in the context of anger is betrayal. So the the basic sort of flow here is: you know, if I betray you at this time, T1, that will be true at T2, T3, TN, whatever. What's the difference between that and just holding a grudge? Is that something that, is that an analog? Is that the same thing?
1: I think it is just holding a grudge, yes. Yeah. In effect, what I'm doing in that piece is arguing that grudges are rational. Hmm. They're just a rational response to the fact that somebody did something bad and can never undo it.
0: Do you think it's worthwhile?
1: Often not, right? So like, you know, what my, my point in saying that it's rational is like, if you think there's a reason to be angry, Right. So like, if you think there was any, like, you, I might, you know, I might not have betrayed you, you may be wrong about that, or whatever. Then maybe you didn't have any, but suppose, suppose we think there is a reason, then that same reason is still a reason later, it doesn't change, the reason doesn't put on different clothing at later times, right? you know, should you, you could have a reason to be angry, but have overwhelming reason not to get angry, mm. even though you have a reason to be angry, and you could have a reason to be angry, but like, have a reason not to hold on to your anger, like they're all kinds of ways in which anger is inconvenient. So sure, right, that reason can be overridden by other reasons. That's true of every kind of reason. But, you know, there's a different there's a different kind of thing that people, I think, had hoped, which was to say the reason could somehow be addressed or resolved, right, such that then you wouldn't have a reason anymore, such that it would become irrational for you. And that's what it's a little bit harder for me to see what would count as uh, fulfilling that role.
0: Got it, got it. Do you think there's a... Do you think some things are more rational drivers than others, right? Or does it just depend contextually? Like, is someone driven entirely by anger more rational just in that decision than someone that's driven purely by
1: hope? I think hope is, it's a hard one because hope tends to have a lot of fantasy built into it. So I think that, you know, if what you're doing is attending to this reason that you have to be angry and you just, you have like a laser focus on that reason, and you're not paying attention to anything else, in a way you are more rational in relation to that reason, but you could be being very irrational in ignoring like a whole bunch of other stuff, right? So if we wanna do an overall assessment of rationality rather than just your rationality relative to that one consideration, then I think you're probably gonna be, end up less rational overall if you're angry. That
0: makes sense. There was, I think, I cannot remember the interview for the life of me, but a couple things that you said you were working on at the time, just in your own life. One was fashion, one was God, and I can't remember the third. This
1: was the uh, podcast I did with Tyler.
0: That's the one. So firstly, how did this come? I mean, we're just recording audio right now, but you're dressed in some really funky clothes, <laughs> which you. is very cool. <laughs> Even the headphones that you have laying over on the desk over there like, match your top, which I think is cool. It's just like, where did this
1: come about for you. I think that in general I it really matters to me that things be colorful in my environment. So like my clothes but also my office and like everything I look at and I get a lot of happiness out of color and I'm almost just surprised that this isn't true of everyone. Like it seems to me almost like 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 if you go to if you go to a store there's often like the colorful and the less colorful clothing. And it's not like some big price difference or something like you could just pay the same amount of money because colorful clothing. Right. Which seems to me like you're just getting more value. So in a way, what I think is weird is other people or like, you you know, you have like people's like my office is very colorful, but like everyone could have a colorful office. Like it, it's not it's not like that expensive or that hard. Right. So I almost want to push the, put it on to other people. Like why aren't other people more colorful? Like it's like, it's like food. There's like food that tastes really good, right? And then there's like very boring and dull food. And like most people would choose the like tasty, exciting food, but but visually they choose like the boring food. So yeah. that's weird to me. And I just, I enjoy like, I also like, I hang my clothing on the walls of my bedroom so I can like look at the dress. Cause I can't wear all my dresses. I have a lot of dresses, <laughs> I'm not wearing dress today, but I have a lot of dresses. And so I wanna enjoy them more often than even when I wear them. So I like have them all hanging on the walls and so I can see them. And it just makes me happy to look at them. And I guess I'm also, I guess, exploiting this fact about most people because I like to be the center of attention. It's easier to be the center of attention if you're dressed in like a bright and colorful way, people will pay attention to you. So, I mean, I'm trying to think of, are there any downs? Like, like it's almost like, I'm just, it's weird to me that everyone doesn't do this. There (laughs) seem to be no downsides. It's not especially expensive. It's not really hard. It's like this, it's like, I'm just plucking this low hanging fruit of like this great thing that's available to everyone, but for some reason, other people don't choose it.
0: No, it's funny. I'm realizing like sitting here, we are very much like opposites. I think you're in like a color block t-shirt. You have, I think ponds or like marshes oh, yeah, all over yeah, your yeah. pants. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: I think those are lions on your socks or those chickens, I can't tell. They
1: are, it's it's a rabbit and a hat. It's magic, uh, it's a, like a like magic themed socks. Oh
0: my God. And I'm sitting here in gray pants and a black <laughs> sweater. You know, I think for me, I'm like very much notorious among my friends for wearing like gray and mm. black. For me, it's interesting. It feels like a way to ground myself. Mm -hmm. It feels like, I mean, half of it is being able to roll out of bed in the morning and just like pick up anything and it just be look fine. Right. But the other half of it is monochromatics, I think, in my case anywhere, like a very soothing thing. Mm. So on a day to day basis, it does feel a lot more natural for me to just wear, you know, more boring things because it's like that's the one thing throughout the day that like, okay, that can be constant, that can be sort of a sort of a, a calming presence for me in a way. It's a very weird thing to try and articulate.
1: That actually makes a lot of sense to me. That seems rational to me because like <laughs> for me, it's like I'm always looking for more stimulation, right? And yeah. so I'm like assuming everyone wants that. And I'm like, hey, why doesn't everyone take this thing that they could have? And what you're saying is not everyone wants that. That is, we may be getting a lot of stimulation in certain areas of our lives and we wanna keep other areas of our lives more calm. Yeah. And so I'm just like maximizing stimulation everywhere, but that might be, you know, more than what other people want.
0: Yeah, definitely. So what about the other one? You talked about fashion. You said the other thing was God. Is that still something you think about a lot? Yes, it is.
1: And I think that, you know, one, like the form that that has taken most recently, and I this might not seem like direct, but is like to think a lot about complaint. Because hmm. I think of like, God as in some way the fundamental addressee of complaint in the form of like prayer and in the form of like, why did you make the world this way? (laughs) And why are things the way they are? And I think, you know, I just, I have a lot of questions, like religious questions that I haven't found a good context for communicating with people about. So I'm still like, I am still working on that. But like one question that I have is like, I tend to like I struggle over my belief but I tend to believe in God but have like a very open-ended sense of what God is in the sense of like I'm open to the thought that there are many gods and I'm open to the thought that like all the people around me are gods like maybe this is what God looks like is like human beings there are times when I think that that human beings are kind of like mortal gods of sure. a kind and so one thing I'm like one thing I'm still you know, sort of struggling with is how to find the right avenue, the right place for discussing those questions. And I have like, I've gone to some conferences on religion. I taught a class I think on religious epistemology in Brazil. <laughs> I So I've, I've done different things, but, but it hasn't like pulled itself together. And this thing about complaint, which I'm still sort of, I wrote something for the point, but I'm still thinking about it, is maybe the best condensation of that aspiration or something so far. I think my third thing might've been teaching that I said in terms of what am I aspiring in relation to, mm-hmm. you know, trying to teach to do better in the classroom. And I think i found that a lot, like, in a way, I'm not sure I've improved that much in the classroom, but I've, since the time I had that, you know, which was, that was the first, I did a podcast. It was the second podcast I ever did, but it was like the first, you know, sort of big podcast. And and since then I've done like a lot more sort of public type stuff and sure. I've found that there are maybe more ways for me to exploit the kinds of advantages that I have in teaching. Like there's certain things I'm good at in teaching and certain things I'm not good at. And when I think I said to Tyler that I wanted to improve in relation to teaching, I was thinking of becoming better at the things I'm not good at. But what I've maybe found more of is like, well, I can just find more and different ways to do the things I am good at.
0: Got it. Got it. That makes sense. You know, your Your point on complaint when you were talking about God, I think really resonates because usually when people talk about God, the fundamental question is like, oh, like is God real? Right. I don't think that's really the right question to be asking at all. I think it's to your point. I think what you were trying to get at at least a little bit there is I think all that really matters is, you know, what benefit it provides or what benefit believing God provides in life. You know, like I think having something or someone to sort of point at and whether you're directing, whether you're directing gratitude or, whether you're directing a complaint or anything else, like having that thing to sort of point at when anything's out of your control, I think is just a fundamentally like good thing as far as quality of life is concerned.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, my earliest, like it's interesting because as I said, I was telling you earlier that I ran into troubles as a young kid being in a religious school, but not being from a religious family. And then it would, you know, it was, sort of, I mean, I guess this is how things go. Is like by high school, when I started believing in God, I was now in public school, <laughs> no longer in a religious context. But I think the first thing that drew me to believe in God was just feeling grateful that everything existed and feeling like if there's no God, there was no being to whom I could express my gratitude. Like that the gratitude had nowhere to go, you know? And I always think, oh, the sad thing if you don't believe in God is you can't be as grateful for everything that exists and how wonderful everything is. But then there's also complaint, which is that, like, I have I found the need to complain more, you know, that that need is is more compelling to me lately. And I find that even when I complain to another person, I think I'm complaining to something very special in them, right, like the the part of them that can hear my complaint is sort of the divine part of them, where I'm like, Why are things the way they are? Why am I being made to hurt? Why do I have to suffer? Like when you say that to another person, like they could very well be like, why are you asking me, right? But like, if you say that to the right person, they're not gonna say, why are you asking me? And so in effect, it's like they're taking on the mantle of like playing God, being God (laughs) for that interaction. And that's part of what drives me to think maybe that is like what it is to believe in God is to in some sense feel like you can address other human beings as God. Maybe that's the closest. It's like, because if you're addressing, I find, Often I do pray and I try to address God, but it's hard because, like, you're imagining, like, like a hazy thing or like a kind of <laughs> old man, or and you're trying to tell yourself not to imagine those things, right? And it may be that the closest you can come to like addressing God is actually addressing the human being. Hmm.
0: So, last question for you has a bit to do with privacy, life online, living in public. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that. You're very much a fan of being the center of attention. And at the same time, you are someone who's pretty active publicly, be it on social media or writing in columns, any of this other stuff. Is that something that comes naturally to you, would you say?
1: Yes. I mean, I was, you know, I only like I joined Twitter about three years ago, maybe three and a half now. But I like it a lot. I like the I like interacting with strangers. I I do think it comes pretty naturally to me. I think that there's this incredible sense of possibility, like, and some of it may be an illusion, but of the space of possible interactions that you can have with sort of anyone that, that online kind of promises you. And I get all kinds of help that I wasn't expecting, you know, I'll just mention something and someone will be like, oh, here's the thing, or, oh, did you read this? Or here's an idea, here's an argument, here's whatever. Like, and if you sort of, I think how much you seek attention is just a function of how self-sufficient you are. Hmm. Like, and so I'm not very self-sufficient. I'm not capable of really thinking that well on my own. Uh, I'm not capable that well, capable of entertaining myself. I mean, I can do it if I have a book or something, but that's another kind of socializing. And so I think that I enjoy having this set of social interactions that I can always like plug into whenever I want. I didn't like being in a world where Like, I couldn't socialize whenever I felt like it. So I like it. But I very much see that for other people, it can be quite oppressive. And I'm, it's a little mysterious to me, and I'm not saying I'm suspicious or skeptical, but it's just genuinely mysterious how much people who seem to think it's bad are also just drawn to engage in it nonetheless. I would like a better theory of that than I have.
0: Yeah. One thing that's interesting and... I guess this is a, a separate conversation altogether, but there's this concept of the metaverse that's like mm-hmm. come into question a lot uh, recently, especially with this Facebook announcement, I think yeah. like a week ago. And a really cool way I heard it described was it not necessarily being a place, but rather a point in time when you care more about your online presence than your real life presence. Mm-hmm. Do you see yourself moving in that direction at all?
1: So it depends what we mean by your online presence. Mm-hmm. So. I am, though I love being on Twitter and I like having an online persona in that sense, I hate Zoom way more than <laughs> like I think anyone that I've interacted with. Yeah. Like as you may know, I insisted on our doing this <laughs> doing interview this in, person. In, re- in person, right? I see a huge difference. For me, it's like it's not even really the same sort of thing. It's like there's there's doing something and then there's pretending you're doing it. And all the stuff on Zoom to me is more in the direction of just pretending. so? So when I'm on Zoom, I just feel like I'm acting, like I'm acting like a human. I'm forcing myself to pay attention, but at every moment I'm sort of distracted. If I have any ability to like do other things, I will, like whether it be doodling or checking my email or whatever. I'm not able to really control those impulses. I lose track, if it's a talk, I will just stop paying attention. (laughs) And the theory that I've come up with about myself is that my brain at a very deep level does not think that what's happening is real. When it's like a bunch of faces on a screen, my brain says, that's not how reality looks. Mm -hmm. It's not how people show up to you. And so these people aren't actually there. This isn't actually happening, right? This is like a movie you're watching. Right, right. And so I keep telling myself, No, 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 this is real. Like this is like a lecture that I'm attending and I have to listen and pay attention, ask a good question. I'm trying to tell myself that, but I'm like counteracting this voice and deep inside my brain saying, This is not real. And the whole Zoom experience is that battle inside my soul between the deep part of my brain saying this is not real and me trying to tell myself it is real. And like how much of me I can devote to the interaction is like whatever fraction is left over from fighting that battle. And so you're asking me about the metaverse, you know, I'm like, well, what, what would, it, would it be like Zoom? Or would somehow that trick that deep part of my brain into thinking this was really happening because things are more like three-dimensional and I have these glasses and maybe that's enough. And then maybe that deep part of my brain thinks this is actually happening. That's all I need. I just need it to be like, you know, convinced of, but I'm worried that that deep part of my brain is actually pretty well attuned to the way reality works and to the way things smell and feel when they're really happening. And that like, if I saw people like looking like they did in that metaverse video, I'd be, my brain would be like, this isn't actually happening. This isn't real. This is like a movie. This is like a video game that we're in. And so I am in that way though I love Twitter, like I am also, Twitter doesn't somehow persuade me that we're in a room, you know, hanging out, right? Forms of online interaction that attempt to mimic interpersonal interaction so far have done it poorly. Again, I leave room for the idea that they could do it well at some future point.
0: Sure. So to wrap us up, just wanted to delve a little bit more into the privacy aspect of it Mm. and what you thought about that. You know, again, having sort of a Pretty large online persona. And I think there was something you wrote again This is a New York Times column about tweeting about your son and I'm curious especially in the context of that Maybe not with people, you know close to you But you yourself is privacy something that you think about a lot and I don't mean like, you know Someone's gonna find you or like there's a safety concern, but I mean more so about you know your ownership or agency over your own work over your own thoughts. Is that something that comes up? I
1: think about it a huge amount. I I was starting to write something about it like almost a year ago. I went and like this deep dive in the kind of legal theory literature on privacy and like you know just read like thousands of pages of law review articles on privacy and the conclusion i come to is like we don't know what privacy is like the the sort of most state-of-the-art paper that i can remember was a kind of it's called like a taxonomy of privacy but i think the author's name is s-o-l-o-v-e i don't know how you pronounce it but it was like here are like 17 different like headings that fall under privacy that might not have much to do with each other right right so i think like the number one thing i think and there's a famous article by judith thompson called something like The Right to Privacy in which she's like, yeah, I think it's kind of a way we have of grouping together certain ways of protecting other rights, right? So one question I have is like, is there such a thing as The Right to Privacy? We sort of, you know, it was sort of created by Brandeis and there's a joint authored, Brandeis and somebody else, essay called The Right to Privacy that was like, the you know, introduced the idea that there could be such a right, but it had a lot to do with really the right to like have people like sell your image and stuff like that, right? So so I think about it a lot at a philosophical level. In fact I'm 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 thinking I should teach a class on privacy. But I feel at a personal level less sure what it is that I would want in wanting privacy. That is kind of a little bit with the skeptics as to like there may not be anything like it may be a word that we use for a bunch of stuff that makes us uncomfortable is like that violates my privacy.
0: Like it is is it inherently good. Is sort of what you're saying.
1: Yeah, like, like, there. Are, I guess here's the way I put it. There are all all sorts of ways we resist being interfered with for our own benefit. So, like Socrates' as interlocutors could have said, "Leave me alone. I have a right to privacy. Stop like trying to show me that my basic framework for thinking about the world is broken." Right. And he was interfering in their most like intimate place namely their basic value structure and saying i'm going to tear this apart and i think that was a good thing to do (laughs) and if that kind of privacy violation is okay i'm not sure like that the idea of privacy or interfering or intrusion can in and of itself be a problem
0: Got it, agnes that's all i had okay (laughs) this was awesome thank you for doing this
1: yeah it was fun thanks
0: totally